Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Sarah. It's been a long time. I know. Happy 2022. Yeah. Yeah. New year. And we are starting with some fun and uplifting topics. No, so we're starting <laughs> with we're starting with eschatology, not to be confused with scatology or scatological. Eschatology, right, deals with what happens when we die, what happens at the end of time. It's sort of the the end days conversation. We are well, and we're talking today specifically about death. What happens after you die? And of course, you know, on the one hand, the answer is. I don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows. And we move on. But that's a completely unsatisfying answer. <laughs> yes, yes, it, it is a deeply unsatisfying answer. And, and we can certainly uh, dig into why it's deeply unsatisfying. <laughs> um, but you were sharing a story about a recent conversation. By this congregant who used to talk to me every once in a while about things that mattered to her. And this time she sort of made an appointment. She really wanted to, to talk. And um, she asked me, what happens when you die? And, and I said, I don't know. And we don't know. And, you know, and it, she was clearly distressed by my answer and said, well, but don't you think it's possible that, that people really stay here, that they're with us and that, Maybe even sometimes we can see them or sometimes we can hear them or they make themselves known. And because our energy shifted the way that it did, I said, yeah, sure. I mean, we don't know, right? So not knowing means sometimes, you know, anything is possible. And then the more she talked, it became really clear that her best friend had died and left behind two young children. And it became very important to her, something she probably hadn't thought about much until then, but now was feeling like it was really important that people die and that they continue to live in some fashion and are still present and accessible to us. I think that the question of what happens after you die is so much more than the rational we don't know, right? So Confucius and Siddhartha Gautama, and they gave us these really rational responses, like why, I mean, Confucius said something like, why are you talking about something you'll never have an answer to? <laughs> don't waste your time. And, and Gautama said, take the arrow out of your back first before you start worrying, right? The idea was like, you are currently suffering. This is what you need to pay attention to. And I, and I, I tend to sort of fall into that category, except that the question is so personal and powerful and the, the reality of death is so unbearably painful sometimes that we require more from-, from well, I, 
I think that's it. I think you've hit on it, right? It's the it's a combination, I think, of the unbearability of the pain, but also our inability as humans to conceive of time in certain ways, right? So we understand ourselves and our knowing and our existing. And we don't, we can't really comprehend what it means to say before we came to be and after we are done being, there's sort of eternity on either side. And it's hard for us to fathom that that eternity would be a thing we didn't experience. And so then if you, if you have this sort of, if you can't move out of, I will continue to be a knowing thing, right? Then I can't bear to think that on the other side of my existing, where I'm still knowing, I like know, but I can't be there. I know, but I can't feel my people around me or what, right? Like there's this desire. And so I think people like the Buddha, right? Are like, we won't know, we won't be, we won't, right? Like there's some notion of like, if you can, if you can get to that place and it's fascinating to me, right? Because um, my children, one of them is very clearly like, I'm afraid of death, but I'm not afraid of death because when I'm dead, I'll be dead and I'm not going to know what's happening. So who cares? He's afraid of other people dying and having to bear the pain of other people dying. Right. But he's like, whatever, I'll be in the ground eaten by worms feeding the earth. I don't, you know, and it's this really interesting, but, but everybody, not everybody's constitutionally capable of that. Right. Cause one of them is like, when I get reincarnated as a dog and I'm like, who taught you reincarnation? Right. And so you just, I think that there's sort of some people who's brains are why I, I don't know maybe it's that fundamental right who can who can do that turn or maybe it's discipline maybe it's a matter of you know if you discipline yourself enough to sort of take the arrow out and live in the moment and make this as good as possible but I do, I do think there's something about time that's involved in this and there's something about the pain of separation and the the, the belief that when you're dead you won't belong right that you'll be sort of out in the world unbelonging and I think that's that maybe makes it really hard for folks to to imagine that we just poof and that's it, you know. And so I think we create these stories. Right? Historically, we've created many mythologies around what happens when you die, and and some of them are elaborate, and and some of them, a lot of them, really have implications around how we're supposed to live, like. It feels like if I were to think of a common thread, there is this idea of um, some kind of universal system of justice, a cosmic, you know, so that you're going to get what you deserve in some fashion, which may also help us to balance living in a world of great injustice, so that we create these multi-tiered um, worlds that happen afterwards, right? So maybe a reincarnation system and coming back as different things, or it may be like the heaven hell purgatory system or like river sticks, you know, like the whole, there are so many possibilities and all of them seem to kind of hinge on who have you been? How have you behaved? How have you treated other people and animals in the world? And that will determine what's next for you. Yeah, I just can we I just want to pause for one second to share like so whenever my kid talks about reincarnation, I think about how I was taught in that in especially sort of um like Hindu reincarnation systems, at least classically, right? You wanted to be reincarnated as a man and you want to be reincarnated in a certain caste and whatever. And I look at my like white boy children and I'm like, you're at the highest thing. You don't <laughs> mean to anyway. I have like a funny little it's and they don't believe that. 
I don't believe that, but I have this funny little moment in my head when it happens. But yes, we build all these systems up because we want to capture something that we don't understand, right? And that we can't. And so we make a story about how it works. And I often think, Peggy, I don't know if you've ever read the C.S. Lewis um Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Okay, so oh, I, yeah, yeah. I that one too, yeah. right. So that whole series, right? In grad school, I, re- I reread those in like a children's religious literature class, and people sort of forget because they read that first one, which is like wildly christological, but also just like a good yarn, right? And but if you keep reading, they're super racist, like super horrible, and you get to the end, and it and it's it is it depicts a very Christian sort of story about when you die, you will be judged and you're going to either funnel off this way to heaven or funnel off that way to hell for eternal punishment. Right. And I think there's a real, and Susan, one of the sisters, I always remember this, right. I barely remember anything about these books, but I remember Susan gets funneled off because she wore exactly wore stockings and lipstick, right. She wore makeup going to hell, you know, and it's such an interesting, so your point about what it, what it does is there's almost this way in which we envision the afterlife as a way to manage this life. And by that, I mean, manage people into a very narrow vision of what's appropriate and okay and what's considered good, right? Even my little story about thinking about white men as the top of the like reincarnation system, like it creates a narrow vision of what's best and what's proper and what's going to make sure you're not like tortured for eternity. Well, that's the whole opiate of the people, right? I mean, this is this right. is a fabulous way to control people. You promise them something you could never prove happens, right. but you create the narrative and you reinforce the narrative so often, so clearly institutionalizing the narrative so that people feel compelled to work within the system you've created for them. Which is interesting, right? Because all it's really doing is preying on our fear and our inability to conceive of ourselves as finite and yet still powerful right as contained within a specific moment in time but that doesn't deny our value or importance right like I I think that's part of it too is that we we get this notion that like in order for our lives to matter they have to be long or big or something right um and and they don't but it all just patterns around this like how do we assuage fear or use fear as a tool right and how do we make people um you know marginally comfortable with death mm-hmm. this is I don't know I'm I am actually curious how you have conversations with your child about death you know he my father died when he was two mm-hmm. and my husband's father died when he was six so he and then not long after that my mother had a stroke and while she hasn't died she's a completely different person than who she knew him to be um and it feels like she's moving toward death just very slowly um so it's actually really been a part of his life and he's lost two dogs in his life already so in a lot of ways he's more present to death than i find other kids his age and it doesn't completely seem to scare him it feels like it's just part of what he knows happens in the world um at the same time he doesn't so he doesn't seem like um stunned or shocked by it but he does it does seem to me that he's um he hasn't created a system around it right he doesn't he hasn't like said 
what happens or like he doesn't talk a whole lot about it. it just feels like it actually feels very buddhist right the way that the buddhists kind of make the youngest child set the flame that burns the body as a way of like bringing children into the story of death really early that's been true for him and as and because of that it's this sort of like he just has accepted it and hasn't really reflected a whole lot yeah. on it. it's not hasn't been so sudden that he like suddenly needs answers it's just kind of part of life yeah and of course with COVID and so many people dying and so many people sick that we know he just He's like, you know, sometimes life really sucks. <laughs> but see, I think in the course of human history, right, if you consider that for most of human existence, humans have died much earlier than we do now, death was a routine. I mean, and the survival rate of children was like one in four until the 20th century or something insane, right? I'd have to look that up. But like, that's my point is death was a much more routine, much more part of life, much more. And I'm not saying like, it was in those times that crazy systems got developed about what it meant and where you went and stuff. I'm not saying that like those idyllic times when people died frequently, I just mean that there is a way that like our generation our, and our children's generation don't actually have to actively face it regularly, right? Like I know people who made it to 18, 19, 20 years old before even a grandparent died, right? They had no childhood experience, no exposure aside from movies and, and you know, whatever. Um, but I think that's an interesting that like, can we sort of teach the unknowing, right? Can we collectively just sort of live in that place where we can say, we don't know there's different possibilities, but we don't know. All we know is it's a part of life. It's part of the cycle and it's going to happen to everyone. And is that enough? Can that be enough if we teach it as enough, right? If instead of overlaying onto that, everything else, can we just let that be? You know, I don't think so. <laughs> no, okay. And, and the reason the reason is that I, I think that we are story making people. And I think that even when things make complete sense, I mean, how many times in my life? It's been like a hundred thousand times in my life when things make complete sense. They're totally rational. Everyone has all the information they need, but without a good story, it, it doesn't matter. And for something like death that creates so much anxiety. I think that we often need those stories. Now, with that said, my father's mother died when he was 10 years old and he, the stories never really worked for him and he let go. He was like, you're just dead. Like what matters is the people who are still living. Like we're the ones who are suffering. We're the ones with the loss. Where they go doesn't matter because we'll never know and it doesn't affect us anyway. See, this is my point. I'm not saying deny the possibility of a story. I'm saying don't commit to ones. And this is very much my, like, I was a UU child upbringing where I'm like, we can live in the mystery and that is enough, right? That like, it's enough to sort of say, like, it's enough for me, I think, to say to my children, this is going to happen to all of us. It's part of, it is literally part of life. They are wrapped up in each other and you can't separate them. And we don't know, and you can believe what you want. And I will be down for that. But like, we don't know. It's a belief that you can hold, right? Um, but yeah, I, it's, I love that you were like, no, <laughs> but yeah, I hear you about story making and storytelling and, and, but, but I don't think, and this may be something we table for another day, this question of does meaning making require a certain kind of 
emotional or psychological or mental commitment to a singularity or can meaning making exist in plurality, right? Um, yeah, and I think that the idea that there are multiple stories, I mean, I, I live in that space, right? There are multiple stories, many things are possible. I have all kinds of scenarios in my own head about what might happen when we're next. I'm completely committed to the fact that I'm probably wrong about all of them and, and there are different ones and different times, different things feel more real. What, Can I, what I, get, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna wrap it up. I was really gonna say, I think that uh, the thing about this subject is that we could talk about it forever and never get anywhere because, because ultimately we don't really know. And that's really our, our in the end, we're talking, we're defining this big question. I think what liberal religion offers us is, is a lot of maybes. Yes, and I wanna contend that we can turn those maybes into a satisfying enough answer and that the satisfaction can be found in opening the space for lots of different ways of telling a story, right? Instead of one narrow vision. Um, yeah, I feel like we'll, we always come around and dance around this topic a lot. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll be back again. Um, yeah. Well, it was good talking to you about it. Bye, Sarah.